say those things, Jamie, because I got 30 minutes or so to say anything I want about you. Ah, oh, that one. It's good to be here this morning. Um, good morning to everyone here. Uh, it's always fun to get the view from the front and specifically when the light goes on and let's see all of you here. Uh, we just started last week our series on prayer and um, we're going to continue that. It's a four-week series and um, prayer is one of those things that we talk a lot about. <laughs> Sometimes a little harder to do. And uh, I was thinking about my experience with prayer and I, I had this uh, memory from 12 years ago or so. We, we lived in the Netherlands and we were part both of an international student ministry but also part of an international church and that church was uh, looking for a pastor and so they would invite pastors over from all over to, to speak and then we kind of would get to know them and we invited them over to our uh, student ministry as well just to get to know them and they would speak and um, I don't remember the specific topic this pastor was talking about but it had something to do with the importance of church and he asked, just like, well, what are things that are important for church? And I raised my hand and I said, prayer. And um, instead of confirmation, I got, I, I got a chuckle and he laughed a little bit, like, yeah, that's the Sunday school answer. Prayer is always the right answer, right? Any question, prayer is the right answer. And I felt somewhat offended by that because I was like, well, but prayer is important, right? <clears throat> but over the last 12 years, I have really realized, like, yes, we talk a lot about prayer, but then when we need to it, um, or maybe I should talk about myself. There's just certain moments when it's not going that well, or I'm not taking the time, or it just doesn't feel very good, and I kind of want to rather do something else. And so, um, yeah, there is that tension between talking, and I know I'm up here talking about prayer. <laughs> uh, hopefully we get a little bit of an, uh, an opportunity today even to pray. Uh, and, and one way I want to do that is, uh, I, I heard uh, last week we were doing Sunday school up there, so I wasn't here hearing Jamie preach, but I heard that we all uh, said our father together, and um, I decided to take a slightly different translation of the our father, and the reason I do that is not to be cool, or just because I think this translation somehow is better than any others, but because I speak a few languages, I know that a language really determines how um, a message feels. You can't really literally translate word by word into another language and have the same feeling about it, because words have slightly different meanings. And so, similarly, the Bible has been translated in a variety of different uh, translations, and there's decisions have to be made, like, well, maybe this word is closer to this, or maybe if we put it in this order, this grammar, and, and when we say it slightly different from what we're used to, sometimes it's fresh, it's new. Instead of just reciting something, we, we, we get a deeper, deeper meaning, and so that's what I want to do. Um, I took the translation from the Living Bible. Again, it's not better than anything else, it's just a little different. So what I would like to do is get that hopefully up on the screen, and um, that would be kind of important. Yes, and if you guys would all stand with me, and then we'll just pray that together. <coughs> so let's, oh, ooh, that's a little loud. <laughs> let, let, let's start where it says our. Our Father in heaven, we honor your holy name. And be seated. Thank you for doing that with me. Um, so today we're going to look a little bit at prayer in faith, or bold prayer. And uh, I was just thinking, like, what is my perception of bold prayer? And uh, it, it's really easy to come up with some really great stories of people who have done bold prayer and God came through. Uh, uh, a friend of mine and colleague, Jonathan, 
He, um, he works with international students just like I do, uh, but he does it for a long time in Portland and recently moved to Corvallis. But uh, because we're colleagues, whenever there's a retreat or a conference, uh, we've decided to share a room. The main reason for that is that other people really don't want to share a room with us because we're pretty loud snorers. And so, uh, but we can somehow handle each other's snoring. And so that's how we ended up in each other's room. And at the end of a con like a day of all kinds of content at a conference, we will just have time to talk and talk about what's been happening, but also in our lives. And so um, I've just learned a lot about Jonathan's life. and It's been a lot of fun. Um, and he taught me about a story of, of his mother who in the middle of the night woke up and felt that she needed to pray for her son, not Jonathan, but one of Jonathan's brothers just felt like this need to pray. And so she, uh, she w woke up her husband and said, we need to pray, like for, for our son. I'm like, why? I don't know. We just need to pray. And so they prayed for 20, 30 minutes fervently. And then um, they felt that was okay. And so they went back to bed and they just slept. The next morning, they found out that their son had been in an awful car accident that he had, at the moment they started praying, had had been sleeping at the wheel, ran into the, uh, across the median into an oncoming truck, and his car was completely totaled. But by God's grace, he had absolutely nothing. The car was totaled beyond repair, but he was fine. And those are stories like, they're encouraging. I love that. That's like amazing. God is doing all this great stuff, right? We're, we're praying, and God is just showing his might. But then, as I talked with a few of you as well, there's also a little bit of a negative perception. If I'm going to pray in faith and God doesn't come through. If I pray for healing and that person doesn't get healed, not only I will be disappointed, but this person as well. My mother has been not very healthy for a very long time. I've prayed for her many times and she's still at that same place of not being in good health. And so those are things we struggle with. Sometimes we don't dare to pray boldly because we really don't know God's going to come through. And I think it has a little bit to do about also the word faith. I want to spend a little bit of time with that because I've noticed in at least American society, we use the word faith fairly easily. Like, just have faith. And I've always wondered what that means because it feels like there needs to be something extra. Have faith in something or someone. Just have faith. Often it means have faith in yourself. Um, or, but sometimes it's really unclear. Um, again, I work with international students, and I remember uh, a student, really fun guy from Hong Kong. Um, he was really open to the gospel. He started meeting up weekly in Bible studies. He even did outreach with me. Which, he wasn't a Christian, but he was like, oh, yeah, I'll go to outreach and tell people about Jesus. No problem. But he wouldn't decide to follow Jesus. And I was like, what's the problem? So I kept, once in a while, I kept asking him, like, so what is keeping you from following Jesus? And he would say, I just need more faith. To, to him, it was some kind of mystical thing. You either have it or you don't. He didn't know, like, you could increase it or decrease it. It just kind of happens. And I think that is often the case, like, when we think of faith. But faith is not portrayed that way in the Bible. It's actually very tangible. And I, I want to show you that. Um, let's go to Mark 2. There's nothing on the screen. I'll just be telling you what what I believe is in Mark 2, and if, if it's wrong, then you can look that up and, and follow along. Um, this is where Jesus, he's just started his ministry, and he goes to Capernaum, and it says that this is the place um, where his home is. That's interesting. He must be staying there at least for a little longer than, than normal. He might be meeting in Peter's house, 
and uh, the people hear about it, and they're already excited. They've already heard enough about Jesus that they're excited. They want to hear his teaching. They probably want to see his, uh, him doing some miracles. And so the people are crowded, not just inside the house, but they're outside the house. They're excited to hear Jesus, to meet Jesus. And in the midst of that, a group of guys walks up with their friend who is paralyzed. We don't know exactly how paralyzed he is, but he's obviously not able to walk. They need to carry him on a mat. And they get to the house, and they see this enormous crowd of people around that house. And now they have a few options, right? They could say, well, maybe we should come back later when it's kind of people have gone. Maybe we just wait here and see until there is enough room to walk in. Maybe we just give up. But they decide, like, the least, well, you have to be a little creative for this one. They decide to go onto the roof, destroy some property, open it up. There's probably stuff falling down from the roof. And then they, on ropes, let this guy through the ceiling, down to where Jesus is. And it's interesting because I'm like, where, where are the people right now in relation to each other? Jesus is there with the paralyzed man probably in front of him. But these men must still be up there because they have been using those ropes to get the guy down, right? So Jesus must be looking up and looked at these guys and saw their faith. And then he turned to the man and he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, the story then continues that the religious leaders don't like this. It's like, who, who is Jesus to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus says, what well, is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, take up your mat, and walk. And he says, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. And he walks away. And everybody is amazed, right? But the, the thing I want to focus on is that Jesus saw their faith. Now, you could say that maybe Jesus has the ability to look into people's hearts, which he does. But I don't think that's the way that Mark has set this up. He has very specifically shown the actions of these men, and it very specifically says that he sees the faith of these men. Now, these men had multiple options to say, we're not going to do this. <clears throat> One, I'd already talked about disappointing, right? Like disappointment. They might not want to disappoint their friend or themselves. So maybe just better not try. Or uh, when they get there and they can't get in... <clears throat> They could have said, well, let, let, let's, let's leave. This is a little bit too dangerous. Or they might not want to be shamed in front of a group of people. I mean, they're destroying property. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're very visible to everybody. Maybe Jesus would say, what are you doing? That's not right. So there's a lot of risk involved here. But they decide that every step along the way, they are going to do it. And that, to Jesus, shows that they have faith in a very tangible way. There is this urgency it feels like this is the last chance. This is a man that in their society would normally not get healed. And they find it important enough. And through those actions and that attitude, we see that they make very specific decisions for faith. And of course, their faith grows when they see that this man has been healed, right? So there's a direct relationship there. A little further down in Mark, uh, in Mark 8, Jesus has been going around doing healing, doing teaching, and he comes to uh, Mark 8 where there is a centurion coming up to Jesus. Now, centurion, Roman centurion, would be the oppressor. This is not a guy that the Jewish people would like. Uh, he has a lot of power over other people's lives. And so it's really interesting that the first thing that this man says is, Lord, to Jesus. Obviously, pointing like putting him up in, in position of power, right? not what you would expect a Roman centurion to do. And he says, my servant at home is suffering terribly. He is actually also paralyzed. 
which is interesting. Just had a story about a paralytic, and here his servant is paralyzed. And Jesus says, well, would you like me to come with you to heal him? And, um, and the man says, no, you don't have to do that. I actually, I don't deserve it to have you under my roof. Now that might be just because he's really humble. It's also very likely that he knows that Jewish people simply don't go into Gentiles' homes or a Roman homes. They wouldn't do that. But then he continues and he says, Jew, Jesus, just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. Because I understand how authority works. I have a boss and if the boss tells me to do something, I do it. I'm not going to argue. I do whatever he tells me to do. And when I have people underneath me and if I tell one, go there, he goes. If I tell one, do this, he does that. If I tell one to come here, he comes. So I understand how authority works. And he takes that picture of authority and says, so if you are Jesus, you must work like that as well. So you don't have to come to my house. Just, just say the word. And here Jesus says that he is amazed. Now, I haven't counted the amount of times that Jesus says amazed in the New Testament. I don't think it's that many. The only other one I can remember is when he is uh, amazed at their lack of faith. But this time, he is amazed at his faith. He says, I haven't found anybody in all of Israel that has this great faith. And then he goes on a little bit of a tangent for me right now, but he makes an important point. He says, there's, there's going to be people from all over the nations. They're going to walk into the, the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of the Jewish people that were invited first, they're not going to walk in. And of course, he uses that as a warning, right? Like, look, look what's happening here. This guy from the outside is showing this great faith, and you are not. And then Jesus heals the servant from a distance. Again here, the centurion has to go greatly outside of his comfort zone. These are the people that he is actually an oppressor to, and now he has to come and ask help. Very likely that Jesus would say no, that people would point fingers at him and say, well, look, look at him. He's just, he's, yeah, he's not much. <clears throat> There's the potential to ridicule. But his words show deep faith. He, he shows that he understands how authority works. It's, again, very tangible in the way that he is able to say, like, this is, this is how faith works. And, of course, when a servant gets healed, his faith increases. I also want to point out here that if you apply this to, to, to prayer... Because speaking with Jesus, right, is very similar to us through prayer, interacting with God. This is intercession. Both of them bring their friend before Jesus. The first one does that in a very physical sense. The second one does it from a distance. But in prayer, we can do the same thing. We can bring our friends before Jesus, the people that, that need to know Jesus, the people that are hurting, all of those. So I just love it as a picture of intercession. <clears throat> Now, praying in faith, I believe, happens in a relationship. We just saw it, that both of these group, the, the first group of men and then the centurion, they go to Jesus and they ask. Similarly with prayer, uh, it has to happen within a relationship. There's a lot of different uh, definitions of faith. Um, the one I like, though, was that there's two components to it. You have belief and then you have trust. A belief you can do outside of a relationship. I can believe that the world is round. There doesn't have to be any relationship for me to believe that. But if you have faith, automatically the word in needs to follow. Having faith in myself, faith in somebody else, faith in Jesus. And so then, um, we, 
I often hear the, the phrase, uh, prayer works. Prayer works. And on some level, I agree with that, but I feel it takes that whole idea of relationship out of the sentence. It, it, it presumes that prayer does something by itself. Uh, and I don't think it does. If I go, um, for some reason, I really, this month, I'm not going to make the bills. I need $100 to make it through the month. And I'm going to walk onto the street and ask a random stranger, would you give me $100? The chances are really high that he or she is going to say no. And part, big, a big part of the reason is they don't know me. I could be anyone, right? But now if I have a good friend and I explain the situation and I do the same ask, he might say, oh, man, that's really been a tough month. You know what? He might actually be willing to give me $100. So did the ask work? I don't think the ask worked. It had all to do with the relationship in which this conversation took place. When Kelly, my wife, and I moved to uh, Los Angeles with our little daughter, there was a little bit of a surprise we hadn't expected, and it was Jonas. Suddenly we found out, oh, no, Kelly's pregnant. Now, we're excited that, that Jonas came along, but it wasn't a time of lots of stress, moving places, uh, new jobs, new, uh, for me, I was doing a master's and doing work as well, and it was just very hectic. And we got closer to the month that um, we were expecting Jonas to come, and we realized we were not going to have money to fill that gap. Uh, Kelly was working a, a good job, but they were not going to give her um, paid leave because she hadn't worked there long enough. And so we had to figure out, what are we going to do with this month? And um, I don't remember making an ask, but I connected with my parents really regularly. They know me really well. And so they knew about the circumstances. And they said, you know what? For this month, we're going to transfer a certain amount of money, which is more than enough for that month. And that's why we made it through. Now, again, did that was that an ask that worked? I don't remember a specific ask, but even if I had, was it an ask that worked? No, it's like they know us really well. They know me, of course, from birth. They know Kelly uh, for the last 15 plus years. Uh, and even now that we live here, I, I Skype with them every week uh, for an hour and a half just to stay in contact. They come over for a month every two years, and then we go the other year to them. So there is this whole track record of relationship, of showing uh, care for each other. And within that relationship, my parents said, we really want to help you out. And I think prayer is the same thing. We need to do prayer within a loving relationship. Prayer doesn't just work. It needs to happen in our time that we spend with God and get to know Him better. In John fifteen seven, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you abide in me if you have a relationship with Jesus and then all those other things follow and so I think that's really important not to forget now praying also often in the Bible happens in community uh, one great story is in Acts 12 where um, this is after Jesus has already gone to heaven the early church for several years has been growing and then persecution comes. And in the beginning of Acts, it says that King Herod has just killed James, the brother of John. He has arrested a bunch of Christians. And he gets a very uh, positive response from the Jewish audience that are, isn't Christian. And he's like, okay, see, I'm, this is working for me. So he's, 
he's going to do some more of this, and he arrests Peter. But it's around Passover, so he can't uh, uh, kill him that weekend, so he puts him in prison to await trial, it says. But in this case, trial simply means that Peter is fairly certain he is going to die. Now, it describes this prison in quite a bit of detail. There are four squads of four soldiers on rotating schedules that will be in his vicinity. Two of them are actually sitting next to him in his jail cell. He's shackled down. There's two other soldiers in front of his door, and then there is an iron gate before you can get into the city. This is not a normal uh, prison. This is Guantanamo Bay of its time. You don't expect when you're in there to get out of there, except if somebody in power and authority gets you out of there. The church in this town, in Jerusalem, decides to pray. And it says they pray earnestly all night, because tomorrow the trial is. And while they're praying, an angel shows up in his cell. Peter somehow fell asleep. I find that amazing. I mean, he knows he's a day away from probably being killed, and he finds somehow the, the, the peace inside of him <laughs> to, to fall asleep and believe that whatever's going to happen is, is God's, God's will. <clears throat> so he's there, and the angel comes and has to wake him up. He says, put on your sandals, put on your, your jacket, put on your cloak, and uh, let's go. And Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. He thinks he's still dreaming. He's not quite, this is probably not real, right? This is something he's, he, he might wish is happening to him. And so he, he just follows the angel. He, he passes the guards. He, he gets to the iron gate, and it just swings open, and he walks into the street, and he walks about a street length into the city, and suddenly the angel leaves him. And only then does he realize he really escaped. He's out of there. And so the first thing he does is to go to his church community, who are still praying out there. And this scene might be somewhat famous. He, he goes up there to the door, and he starts knocking, and Rhonda, a servant, hears him knock. And um, instead of opening the door, she's so excited, she runs back to her, her church community, is praying, and says, Peter is here! He's outside! Now, this church community has been praying all night. And they probably have been praying for pretty much one thing, and that's for Peter, right? And Peter to get out of prison, somehow, by a miracle. But when Rhonda comes up to, up to them, their response is, you're out of your mind. I don't believe that. Peter can't be out there. But she's adamant. She keeps telling them, it's like, well, it's probably an angel. So they, they've gotten to the place where they find it more likely that an angel is outside the door than actually Peter escaping from prison. Now, they had enough faith to pray, right? They, they, they had this action of prayer. Like, we're going to do it even though we have very little faith. But you see how little the faith was. But then, Peter is still there. He's still knocking, and he's like, maybe we should open the door. And they see him, and they are astounded. And this must have been quite a loud scene, because Peter says, calm down a little bit. I just escaped, right, from this high-security prison. I don't want you to wake up the neighborhood and tell everybody, oh, here he is. So, they quiet down, and he, said, he tells them the whole story of what has happened. He says, tell the brothers, encourage them about this story. I'm leaving right now, right? This is not a safe place to be. So this seems like a really positive story uh, towards the end, although if you read the last paragraph, uh, you'll notice that the 16 soldiers there will get cross-examined by Herod and then killed. So Herod was really not happy about what happened here. 
prayer all night. I don't know if, how often you have done that. Um, I think the closest I've gotten was, uh, again, back in Holland at an international church where um, we had a prayer for the persecuted uh, church. Uh, Open Doors is an organization that works for uh, Christians around the world that are being persecuted. And once a year, they have that uh, a day of prayer for the persecuted church. And uh, they have really good materials that will show a short video of a certain country, certain pastor, and then some people in the church, and there's some specific people you can pray for. And uh, I think we, Kelly and I, were there for about three hours out of that night, <laughs> and then we left because other people just kept on praying. But it was one of the most encouraging experiences I've had. It was really cool, and uh, doing it together, it was so much easier to pray than if I would have done the same thing in my own room. I probably would have made it ten minutes. Now, length of prayer isn't always that important. But I think it does show that if you're just excited to pray for a long time, that something is happening. God is doing something. And I think that kind of prayer often only happens within community. But then we're still back to the the, the question I asked at the beginning. And that is, what if prayer is not being answered, right? I mean, and those are things we face. We pray, and then nothing happens. We pray in faith. We pray in relationship. We pray in community. We, we pray with seemingly the right attitude, and we're still at a loss of why things aren't being answered the way that at least we expect to happen. But let me give you a, a bit of a silly example. Uh, when I was 15, 16 years old, I worked all summer for the components of a computer. I wanted to build my own computer. I worked all summer to get the best parts. I got it at the end of the summer. I put the thing together. Uh, I worked great. But of course, I like to tinker, and so a couple months in, I, for some reason, I took this really cool CD-ROM player that, like, you know, gives a little bit away what time that might have been. Uh, it was cool at the time, having a CD-ROM player, and everybody did. And um, I think I must have been tinkering with it while the computer was on, and I pulled, put the power plug upside down into the CD-ROM player, which, by the way, is technically not possible, so I just put a lot of pressure onto it. And I blew it up. It, was, it was, didn't work anymore. I was really upset about this, and I went to my parents, and I told them, and I expected something like, well, we'll buy you a new one, and, but they didn't. And then I pushed a little harder, like, oh, come on, I've been working really hard for this whole summer, and they're like, no, you broke it, you buy a new one. And so I couldn't buy a new one because I didn't have the money, I had to like work hard, and it took me a while before I had enough money to buy a new one. And at the time, I was really frustrated with them. Now, years later, looking back, right now, I'm a parent now, uh, and I, I look back, it's like, that was actually really good. They instilled a few values in me, right? Like, one, don't play around with stuff that, that specifically in the way I was playing around with it, be a little less risky. Don't leave your computer on and put, like, power into components upside down. Think about things a little bit more. And the other thing is, if you want something, you need to work for it. I think both of those values are really good. But I didn't have the vision to really look beyond that at that moment. All I thought... My parents are good parents. They're going to give me a new one. The story I just told you about Acts 12 seems to have this, like, they're doing this prayer. There's only a little bit of faith, but there's enough faith, and then God does this amazing thing and, and frees Peter. But if you remember, at the beginning of the story, it started out with James, the brother of John, being killed. Did the church not pray for James? I think they did. And I, the reason I think they did is because they had such small faith. I think the first time they've been praying and expected God to do something, 
and James was killed. And now in the same situation, they're praying for Peter, but they know what happened last time. And that's why they don't really expect Peter to get out of prison. Why was James killed? I don't know. But there's my belief that God has a bigger vision. Let's look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's this famous prayer that he has there. He goes with his uh, disciples, his like three uh, closest disciples, Peter, J- James, and John. And he goes into the garden. He's deeply distressed. And he prays three times. And every time the disciples have fallen asleep. But what he prays is this. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Take this cup from me. If you would be reading this story for the first time and you get there, I think it would be very reasonable to say, yeah, that's, that's good. We, we don't want somebody to go through torture. We don't want somebody to go through a death like that. This can only be bad. I mean, how on earth can this be a good thing? It's very obvious if you stop there in the story, our vision is limited and we don't understand why God would tell Jesus, well, this is still my will. Still continue with it. Of course, now in hindsight, we see this is extremely important that because Jesus died on the cross, we are in right relationship with God. But that is not something that you would have seen in the middle of that scene. And so, there comes this place where we need to trust God, that God has this bigger vision, and that at times we simply don't know what His vision is. And there we come back to this trust being not just belief, but being, uh, sorry, uh, faith not just being belief, but also trust, that it is in this relationship that we need to trust God, even though we, it doesn't make any sense to us, even though it might make us upset, but to trust that God has the best for us individually, but also as a community. So praying in faith can only happen within a healthy and loving relationship with God. So what do we do? Um, we invest in the relationship with God and spend time with Him. Take time to listen, not to talk. Earlier uh, this morning, uh, you heard from uh, Janie that we did the emotionally healthy spirituality last semester. And part of that was the day-by-day spending time with God. And... Um, been such a blessing to me to spend I'm still doing it because it's such a blessing to just be quiet before God and to, to to be filled within that relationship and so I think that is something that we need to continue to do that's the starting point not to, that doesn't come from us but it comes from God and that we are spending that time in relationship with him then there's the part of uh, praying for others who are far away from Christ or those who are suffering with urgency and expectation very much like the, the, the friends of the paralytic or the, the, the Roman centurion with his servant to bring these people before Jesus. Then pray together with others. Don't do it alone. So you get encouraged and kept accountable. Sometimes it can be a little awkward. I know when we get together and like, oh, what are we going to pray about? But it's also the place where encouragement can happen and God can really use that. And then I think really important is to trust God he has the full picture. You don't. And that's a big that's a step of faith that we need to make. And so I wanna 
help you take a risk. You don't have to take a risk, but it's a little bit of a risk to uh, turn into groups, maybe two or four, and to just share if there's anything that either you would like bold prayer for or maybe somebody else that you could intercede for. Now, again, I know some of us say, like, eh, that's a little awkward. I don't want to do that. If you really feel that like that, feel free to pray at the spot that you're at. But I in- invite you to take this risk and to just turn into groups two or four for the next five minutes or so and, and to pray for, yeah, pray boldly for whatever might be coming up in your group. So you can do that right